I have had a very improbable journey and there clearly is a higher power at work because it is so bizarre some of the things that happened to me at the right time opened opportunities if we talk about this show this show should probably had a very short run we've done 300 shows Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast series. Uncovering God in the creative arts. At the biggest international arts festival in the world, Sanctuary First stops to ask, where does faith and art meet? to Faith at the Fringe, a Sanctuary First podcast that seeks to connect with actors, musicians and creatives who have come to the Edinburgh Festival Fringe. Today I'm joined with my colleague and friend Rob Rawson and together today we have got a very interesting guest with us. His name is Keith Alassie and Keith, I'm told, and he shares this fact that two weeks after giving up his uh, his career as a CEO and hoping to move into the area of learning how to play the banjo because he had 52 banjos that he couldn't play. Unfortunately, Keith discovered that he had cancer and how was he going to live his life and make sense of what had happened to him? And we're going to be engaging with that conversation today. So welcome to you, Keith. Great to have you with us. But before we go into the more deeper side of things today, we just thought it'd be good to have a little chat with you and tell me a little bit, who is Keith Alassi? Well, Keith is a, a son of a set of Italian immigrants. I'm a dual U.S. and Canadian citizen. And I grew up with uh, professional training. I was an accountant, and I ended up rising up through the corporate world by associating with a series of broken companies, ultimately finding my way into the executive suite. And I had this lifelong passion for the banjo because I had seen the Beverly Hillbillies on TV <laughs> in the 1960s. <laughs> And interestingly, some of the best banjo players of our time attribute their interest to that song, but I never learned to play. So I ended up collecting a whole closet full of them and, uh, as you stated, was going to pursue learning how to play them at some point, but life always got in the way. So I retired to do so and then got this diagnosis. It was esophageal cancer. So quite a shock to begin with and then to try and begin to make sense of your life through that. But something has happened for you because you have come through all that and you have this show now that's at the, the festival uh, called Tomatoes. I think it's something, is it Tomatoes Killed Me But The Bandu no, Saved it, Me? Or well, I call them tomatoes, of course. Of course. Yeah. It's, yes. it's, it's Tomatoes time. Tried To Kill Me But Banjo Saved My Life. Yeah, That's a great title, isn't, isn't it? it? I know, and, and it's in, I'm intrigued because I want to know where do the tomatoes come into all this? Well, that's part of the story, of course. Uh, the tomatoes are both metaphorical and real. Uh, they gave me acid reflux, heartburn, which caused my esophageal cancer. Uh -huh. But I also was raised in a fairly abusive Italian household, and that was, uh, they're metaphorical and they represent the life I was born into. The banjos literally helped save my life through a musical therapy sort of journey that I was on. Mm -hmm. But they also represent the life I picked for myself, not the one I was born into. So it's a story of transformation, a story of reflection, 
It's been a very interesting journey I've been on. It was an improbable one. Twice in my show, I say, this is my story, every word of it true, because people never believed it was actually a true story, the things that have gone on in my life. So tell me, you were a CEO of a mining company, and you had 52 banjos. What were you doing with, and you, you told me earlier on they were kind of uh, antique banjos, and you, so what were you doing with 52 banjos? Well, I started out the first one trying to learn to play. I didn't, so it went in the closet. Then I figured I needed better banjos, then I'd be better. That didn't work. <laughs> then I started collecting them. I had been a, bit, a stamp collector and a coin collector, so I just considered them collectibles, much like art. So <laughs> some had an interesting provenance to them, important people had owned them. I just looked at them as an investment as much as anything else. I loved looking at them. People who actually knew what they're doing would come to my house and play them, and they sounded great. And I kept thinking, well, I'll get to do that one of these days. But life, life always got in the way. Do you know, it's funny you should just say that. It reminds me, Rob, an awful lot of people who are Christians, they seem to buy Christian books and they read them and they put them and say, oh, that's quite good. But they never actually learn to do the Christian thing. Yeah. And there's a sense of which we all want to find an easy way to be able to achieve something, don't we? There's something in the human nature. Well, give me the easy way. Is there, a, is there a quick fix for this? I'm intrigued. 52 banjos. You must have a favorite. Well, it changes. Right. Um, actually, the one that I like the most I did not bring here to Scotland because just international travel, limited number I could bring. I normally do an 85-minute show with an intermission, five banjos that are characters here. I've got it down to three. I have to do the show in 55 minutes. But I have a banjo called, I call it my cancer banjo, because when I got my diagnosis, I was told I had very little chance of living five years. In this particular banjo, in order to get it, you had to get on a five-year wait list in order for the guy to build it for you. Jason Why? Romero from Horsefly, British Columbia, Canada. So I figured if I could get on a five-year wait list, that would motivate me to get through this thing. Well, I ultimately did and got that banjo, so it represents for me that journey. So currently that's my favorite, but at other times different ones have been. That's fantastic. Yeah, I you told me earlier, and I hope I got this right, that you're now seven years, 182 days in remission. That's correct. So you've gone way beyond the five years. Yeah, I beat the odds. Uh, they, they tell me I'm probably in the top couple of percent of people have had the procedures I went through. Uh, mortality rate, five-year survivability is about 14%. Uh, I was blessed in a lot of ways. Yeah. So what do you put down to the fact that you're still alive when you had a 50-50 chance of not making it and a very even, uh, you know, a more remote chance of being around now. What, what, what do you put down to it? A lot of people prayed for me. I think that was important. My metabolism reacted very well to the chemo cocktail they gave me. Not everybody is so fortunate. And I kept a very positive attitude. I just dealt with the things I could control. So... I made it my point that I was going to control my attitude and I was going to learn to play those darn banjos. It, it kept me distracted from the radiation chamber I had to go to every day, which was brutal for me. Um, mm -hmm. It gave me a focus. Yeah. My faith played a big role in it. My family played a big role in it. But I just, I opened the show with talking about we're all on a journey, going down the road, trying to get home. Mm -hmm. And I like to look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. You know, I can't change what's behind me. So I just kept very focused in the day and with things I could control, and I left the rest of that 
um, to others. My recommendation to anybody who gets this kind of a diagnosis or an event in life, don't go on the internet. Because the first day I went on there and I looked up esophageal cancer and there's, you know, some woman said, well, my father got diagnosed on a Friday. He was dead on a Sunday and I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And once I blocked all that out and said, you know what? I got medical professionals. I got spiritual advisors. I'm going to listen to them. I don't need to be an expert in that. That was my CEO training. I never had to be an expert. I just need to be able to get good opinions and follow them. So all those things played a role. That's a very, I think that's a very good piece of advice for someone listening in. Mm. So often we can go on the internet and get wrong advice and put, our head is put in the wrong place, isn't that's it? Right. That's right. I, I try to stay as positive mm. as possible. And I have had a very improbable journey. And there clearly is a higher power at work because it is so bizarre. Some of the things that happened to me at the right time opened opportunities. If we talk about this show, this show should probably had a very short run. We've done 300 shows. We've been all over for the UK, North America, uh, gotten all kinds of nice awards, but more importantly, we've touched so many people along the way. There's not a show somebody isn't coming on that audience with a tear in their eye. When I go back the next year, somebody says, you know, I made some changes in my life based on what you told me. I've been sitting here moping around, thinking things weren't good, but I, I implore people to look in their closet and say, what's in there? Get them out, see where they'll take you, you know? And people come up to me all the time and say, you know, that was good advice. So it's been a, a real journey. When I was in the business world, if I did well, shareholders got paid. You know, but there's nothing personal about that. I'm doing my job. This has been the most rewarding thing I ever did. I ran a company with 30,000 employees. I, I run big organizations. I see 100 people a day. Here, I'm in a venue of 49, and the feeling I get walking off that stage with 49 people that I touch is better than anything I ever got in business. Hmm. So it's far more impactful. Hmm. You're here in Scotland, but where else have you been with your story? You've been probably all over the place, I would imagine. Well, we started in Canada on the Fringe Festival circuit, because who's going to put my story on stage? I was an accountant playing a banjo. I hadn't been on stage since 1972 in high school. So... The fringe circuit allowed me a venue, so I went, I've been all across the Canadian fringes, couple in the states. I was down to Brighton. Uh, I was here last year. We had a, a very nice run there here last year. Of course, we're back, and because we were here last year, we were seen by a number of bookers, and we did a, a tour in northern England here in April. We were here the whole month down in uh, Durham and Hexham and places like that. So I've, I've, I've spent three of the last uh, 13 months in the UK. Yeah, it's been great. Do you know, it's very, I think it's very appropriate that you should come on this particular podcast and at this particular time, because in August, Sanctuary First, which is, as you know, the online church that's promoting this, these particular podcasts, our theme for this month is Habitats of Hope, places where you can find hope. And surely you are someone who's come onto this podcast and you're talking about hope, and you're helping people find a place where they can encounter hope. I know exactly why I'm on this podcast. I was supposed to be. I didn't know you. People connected us. I showed up. This is my journey. Every day, something like this happens. The right person is there. Where this point of deflection came from my show 
was in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. I was at a French festival. I was sitting in front of the ticket office playing my banjo, which I always do. It stops people. You can market to them. Gentleman sitting next to me. Turns out he's the reviewer for the big TV station in Edmonton. He asks me who I am. I tell him. He says, I should come to your show. Puts me on, he gives me five stars, puts me on TV, and from that day, we barely ever don't sell out a show. If I'm not sitting there and Todd James isn't sitting next to me, I'm not sitting here. Just it's keeps quite, happening. Isn't it wonderful? It's yeah. such a wonderful story that you're beginning to open up and share with us. Mm -hmm. So could you tell us something about maybe how one of the key, one of those, you saying, one of those wonderful stories where the serendipities are something where just you say, yeah, that, that was just such a blessing. God opened that door for me. Maybe one of the stories that you share in your show? I'm in Chicago uh, at the time when I get this diagnosis. The leading expert in the world on esophageal cancer is a doctor from Italy who was in the University of Chicago Hospital at that moment in time. He and his staff had been there five or six years. They were considered the best. So five, 10 miles from my house, the leading expert in this cancer is there. Three months after I complete my treatments, they all went their own way. Wow. How does that happen? I, I, I love that expression, God incidents, yeah. rather than coincidence. I, I sense God's handiwork in this, you know, yeah. his fingerprints, as it were. Um, just want to go on to the what you actually do. Uh, you say you're a storyteller, really, but an actor, a singer. So people come to the show, they may be expecting some songs, and they may get some stories that are going to really move them, but, but just tell us a little bit about what, what you what do. What hooks them, of course, is our graphic has a banjo, which in Scotland is a little more unique. If I did this show in Virginia, every show's got a banjo in it, yeah, so yeah, nobody yeah. would notice the title hooks people. But it's my life story. It's not stories. It's really my journey. Right. And the metaphor I use throughout the show is uh, what's in your closet, you know, getting it out, but it's also the road and the detours and the, that I've had and, you know, trying to find a destination. So it's storytelling. I give a lot of history of the, the music. Unfortunately, here at the Fringe, I have very compressed time, 55 minutes. Normally, the show's about 85 minutes with an intermission. Mm -hmm. But we hit the highlights. I make sure people know at the end, you know, on a good day, I'm an intermediate player. You're not coming to hear Earl Scruggs. That was never the point. Playing was enough joining the circle of musicians, connecting with people, that was enough. This journey I've been on, that was enough. So it's not uh, a concert, and it's not random stories. It's literally the trajectory of my life, and then once the cancer diagnosis comes through, how that played out. And it played out in the circle of musicians. And if you think about the circle, right? Mm -hmm. The jam, mm -hmm. drum circles, communities gathering around circles to pray and to tell stories. I mean, it, it's primal. It's, it's a primal calling. It's, you know, I, I've got bagpipes in the show. I don't play bagpipes, but the area where I live looks just like around here. We don't have all the castles and things, but it's rural, mountainous. It was settled by people from the UK who left the old world looking for new lives in the new world. So all the music that developed by me was fiddles, uh, pipes, and then they met the African population with their banjos. 
and this multicultural music came together, but there's a strong vestigial sound of bagpipes in a lot of the music that's played by me. <laughs> we, we play Loch Lomond in the show. I ne there's another happy coincidence. I was, my wife was uh, at home and she was sleeping. I was trying to stay quiet and I was playing one of my songs and I realized, you know, that sounds a little like Loch Lomond. And I thought, I'm going to Edinburgh, let's put it in. Yeah. Become a big hit in the show. All these happy coincidences just happen in the show. So it's, uh, it's been interesting. People enjoy the show. They can go online and see the reviews we've had from our audiences. To me, the audience reviews are more important than professional reviewers because they tell you what they think of it and what we get uniformly is, this isn't what I thought it was gonna be, but it was so much more. That's generally what we get. Can I tease something out from you? Because I know you put the banjo save or help to save my life, but I think there is something deeper that's underneath the banjo is the music and the music maker and the music creator and the one who created us to love music. And that takes us into the whole area of healing. So can you see where I'm going with this question? Oh, and I'm there. You know, I don't think a good, I don't think a good fringe title would be Tomatoes Tried to Kill Me, but the savior saved my life. No. You know, that would never, no, that wouldn't sell at a fringe festival. No. There's a strong element of faith in my life. And it's certainly been a huge part of my journey. I was just very careful not to be too overt about it in a performance because I did not want to turn people off to the message. And I have a lot of people come up to me after the show and they say, your faith played a big role in what you did, didn't it? And I said, yeah, but I don't talk about it specifically from the stage. I leave plenty of hints. All the crumbs are there if you want to follow them. Yeah. But I wanted people to be open. I wanted them to we tell corny banjo jokes. You know, you can take pipers, accordion players, and banjo players, and there's so many corny jokes. I know, about you, you, you're, you're always the, the, the butt of jokes. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's yeah. like if you could get a picture of the three together, it's the horseman of the apocalypse, yeah. you know? Yeah. <laughs> but the, it's, so I use the humor to disarm people. Yeah. The music to kind of yeah. engage them on a different level, but then they're open to the message, and the message is one of hope. Yeah. It's, there's a spirituality there, whatever their beliefs are. It's not denominational, you know, it's spiritual. I've been on a spiritual journey. There's no question about so it. So do you think music, can we talk a little bit more about the music for a moment? The music, how does the music, how would you see music as therapy? What does it do? Well, the science of it says there's that vibration that you know, literally in the brain connects certain synapses. There's a scene, a true scene in my show. I got to go to Sophie's Place, which is a music therapy program in a pediatric cancer ward in a research hospital. Kids come into that hospital catatonic. They put a ukulele in their hands. They open right up. There's, there's <laughs> an, a universality of music. We played a retirement community here in town last Sunday. Uh, an actor last year who was here, a friend of mine, had done this same place, and the people at the center said, Melanie Gall, that was her name, she came in and she sung some songs in French, and people in that home who they hadn't heard communicate in years started singing in French. Uh, I believe that. I've seen that happen in my own, in my own time. Um, <clears throat> seeing, visiting a, a home of elderly people who've got dementia, oh, yeah. and they're, they're lying, almost sleeping, and then they, you start singing, 
And in fact, the Church of Scotland ran a program called Singing, a singing program because they brought the families together to sing with the, mom, the, the dementia sufferers. And they come to life. The singing would bring them to life. The music would bring them to life. You know, because of the position I'm in, you know, I had a good life prior to taking to the stage. I've donated 100% of my artist fees to various charities, including funding a music therapy position in that particular program. You can be licensed as a music therapist in the States. I'm not certain how it works here, but yeah. it is a real thing. This isn't uh, speculation. It's, it's well documented that there's an aspect of it. Absolutely. There are music therapists here in, in the UK as well. And I think music is... I think what I'm trying to say too is that people need to realize that music is a gift of God. God has given us it in order that we might get to know him. And, uh, and we can discover God's presence in, in a piece of music. And it, it, you know. well, look at some of the great pieces of music written hundreds of years ago. They were songs that were played in churches, right? In big choirs and big cathedrals. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. yeah there's a soaring aspect to it. And then there's the banjo. <laughs> That's the most elemental instrument of all. You know, you said something when you first arrived. You felt it was, what was it? I think you said it's sacrilege to bring a banjo into a church yeah, like this. And, yeah. I, and, and I wanted to disagree with you because I mean, we've had jazz services in our church where I am. Well, I grew up in a Tridentine right household, very, very conservative, old school <laughs> Roman Catholic, right. the Latin, the whole nine yards. Yeah. So, you know, we were always taught, of course, at the time I grew up, you walk into church, you shut your mouth, you only respond when you're supposed to respond, you pay attention, and to even have brought a guitar into the church in those days would have been considered it. But then, you know, the 70s came around, we started having folk masses and the rest of it, but I remember my parents were losing their mind over it. Oh my God, they've got guitars in the church, you know, it was like, yeah. how could they do that? Yeah. That's where the, they were products of their time, I'm a product of my time. The new people coming through the system, the product of theirs. And the thing I've loved about this journey, I've been able to connect with a lot of younger people I wouldn't have normally connected with. And the, the one common question I always hear from them is, if you had to do it all over again, would you have done things differently? And what I tell them is, no. Because I was born at a time where you were preached to, to, you go to work, you're responsible, take care of your family, all that other stuff, you, you know, go to church on Sunday. But, you know, if you have an interest in the banjo or something else, you don't do that. You do the serious stuff. Take, you know, work. Hmm. I'm a product of my generation. I, I wouldn't have thought that way. I used then. to call that, let's do a proper job. Yeah. Because, I mean, I was an actor many years ago. You know, people say, Rob, when are you going to get a proper job? Because I spent a lot of time resting between scenes, as we call it, you know, and find, trying to find work. And I can still remember my mum saying, I think you should get a proper job. Well, my <laughs> wife my wife is a, an artist, a fine artist, but her family did the same to her. And she ended up originally going into commercial art back when they actually had commercial artists doing ads mm. in, you know, newspapers and stuff. Now it's all computerized and whatnot. And she only was able to pursue her fine art years, years later because you were so focused on that. Right, mm -hmm. the family said, but but my parents were depression era people. Yeah, you work, you save all your money, you only pay cash. Right, yeah. they're products of their environment too. So, one of the th themes in my show is the forgiveness of my for my father that I reach at the end of his life, and I think forgiveness is important too. Mm -hmm. And you walk the mile with them, right? You get older, you realize these things come to you. 
So the forgiveness is, do you think that is also part of your healing? Yeah. I had to let it go. Um, where do you get, as a Christian, how does that guilt forgiven? Could you explain that to someone maybe listening in? Because we, we talk a lot about faith, but let's just go further. I'm going to press you. How do you know you're forgiven? We're taught it, but until you experience it. So how, how does it happen? For me, the cancer was a huge wake-up call. All the things I thought were so important in my life weren't. Things I thought, you know, when you're told you're not going to be here one year from now, boy, it changes the way you see things. Particularly, I had never been sick a day in my life, so this wasn't like I was lingering and all of a sudden they say, hey, you don't have much time left. I thought I was riding high. And for me, the forgiveness came when I stopped judging people. Because... Lack of forgiveness has a lot to do with judgment, judging of others. And mm -hmm. with my father, Tulio, I came to the point of saying, this guy got on a boat. He came over to North America. He was 11 years old, couldn't speak a word of English, got abused by kids in school, teased, ethnic slurs, went to work, did all the right things, never made it up the corporate ladder because he was you know, so awkward socially, brought it home. It was words, his belt and his fists, as I point out in the show. He had a lot of anger. He married my mother, who's an, you know, very different than him, and they didn't know how to cope with all that. There wasn't counseling. There was, you didn't even go to your priest and talk about those things, right? You're just buttoned up. You keep the dirty laundry at home. So when I started reflecting on all of that, I said, you know, who am I to judge? Well, my forgiveness of his behavior was founded in my realization of all my own imperfections, right? Who am I to judge? So I think I'm going to push you a little bit further. It was tied in with the forgiveness of Christ on the cross, the yep. one who takes your guilt, the one who takes your sadness, your suffering. And but You're taught that in church. You read it in the scriptures. But for at least for me, I had to live it. Right? We all reach that point of realization. Yeah. You know, the light bulb turns on for different people at different points. Mm -hmm. For me, that's how it turned on. Others have some other transformative thing. Others come in, listen to your podcast, and a light bulb goes off, a connection gets made. So there's so many different paths to forgiveness. Yeah. Mine is unique to me, but others will find it. But they, I mean, at the end of the day, it all comes back to the same thing, right? Do you know, Keith, I think. I don't know if you agree with me, but I do think the Holy Spirit comes and reveals things to us and helps us begin to see things that we never seen before. Uncovering, you know, a revealing is, is not something that's just a new thing, but something that's revealed is something that's always been there. And all of a sudden to have that revealed to you, this is what this is all about. And perhaps somebody listening to our podcast today, they can maybe go that a little bit further as we are going just now and think, that's what the cross of Christ is all about. That's what forgiveness is all about. You know, and by the power and the presence of the Spirit of God, Christ within us can help us forgive others. And so we take the Lord's Prayer. 
Amen. And forgive us. Amen. For those who, who sin against, against us, us. Yeah. help yeah. us to forgive them yeah. because we have been forgiven. Yeah. You know, and, and I think it releases so much. I think you've come to the crux, the very kernel of all of this. And I really wish you well as you go and take this show because you're obviously touching people's lives yeah. and you're touching big topics of illness and all that goes with that. But then people reassessing their life and thinking, what's my life all about? And I'm quite sure there'll be people saying, I think I'll bring so-and-so to hear this show because you know, it would do them the world of good. You know, it's interesting in a month-long run like this, I'll see people three times. They come, they come, they come back with a family member, they come back with a friend that they think needs to hear it. But also forgiveness for me, I was a pretty arrogant young kid, right? I, I tell people all the time, I get dumber as I get older. Because when I was 20, I knew everything. <laughs> yeah. And and you get you wake up when you wake up, right? Yeah. The, the world slaps you around enough, finally you figure it out. Well, I think we've had a wonderful time I, together today. We've got to ask him the obvious thing is if, if there's an opportunity yeah. for you to play. I mean, that would be lovely. I did bring um, an old-time banjo with me. And the reason I bring it is I describe that vestigial sound of bagpipes. I also play a bluegrass banjo in the show. But the music near me, um, these are the sounds I hear. It sounds like bagpipes to me. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does indeed. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. So listen, if folks are wanting to see your show, where, where, where can they come? Well, uh, we're playing at the space at Symposium Hall every day, 3 o'clock through the 26th. Uh, we've sold out every show to, through today. There are still tickets available for the remaining shows. And we have one the 17th evening at 9.50 in Symposium Hall over at the space. That's late. I'm usually in bed by then, but we've had some very nice houses for shows we just recently added. Well, listen. Fantastic. Thank you for being with us today. Yeah. Thank you for taking the time to share your story. And I think you've been a blessing to many people. And I hope that those of us who are listening in to, on the podcast, especially those who have encountered and been part of all this today, I wonder if you could put your comments in, your encouragements, your opportunities, your stories of how you have been able to find peace and comfort in your life, perhaps through music, but coming to know through your faith a greater understanding of how you can cope with sadness and joy. So thank you for being with us and encouraging you that you can listen to all these podcasts on Spotify or on uh, iTunes, or you can go and download our app and you can do that at either one of the app shops or you can watch it on our website at www.sanctuaryfirst.org.uk or even on Facebook. So there you go. We'd love to keep in touch with you and thank you for being part of our podcast series. Until next time, God bless. God bless.